The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hi, this is Glenn Lowry, host of The Glenn Show. You may have tuned in expecting to see John McWhorter, my conversation partner, and I engage in conversation, which we do every other week here at The Glenn Show. Unfortunately, due to circumstances beyond our control, we were unable to record this week. We've had to postpone our conversation by one week, and we'll be back next week and continue from there our biweekly, every other week conversation. So with apologies for circumstances beyond our control, I will be talking with Jay Bhattacharya, the professor of medicine, epidemiologist, and PhD economist at Stanford University about COVID-related matters this week. And John will be back next week. Thanks. Hey, Jay, how you doing? I'm good, Glenn. Thank you for having me on. It's an absolute thrill for me. Oh, you're too kind. Thanks a lot. Uh, This is Glenn Lowry. This is The Glenn Show, everybody. Uh, I teach at Brown University, and I'm uh, John Paulson, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute sponsors The Glenn Show, uh, and I'm here every other week with John McWhorter. I'm here this week with Jay Bhattacharya. Jay is a professor of health policy at the Stanford uh, Medical School and is a PhD economist. He's a health economist. Um, and he he's a social critic, actually, in a, in a way. I mean, he he's... Uh, uh, one of the people who has been uh, most uh, incisive and uh, insightful in uh, criticizing uh, policy around the COVID-19 pandemic, about the eff- effectiveness of lockdowns, about the uh, appropriateness of vaccine mandates and so on. Um, and uh, I-, I wanted to talk with him today about that uh, general subject, because here we are now uh, down the road a bit, and I think there's the benefit of hindsight and there's the ability to, to make some assessments. Uh, Jay's also uh, the uh, co-originator of a podcast Substack newsletter called The Illusion of Consensus that he's done in collaboration with a, a young journalist, a young Canadian journalist named Rob Aurora. Uh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that too. So uh, y'all good? Y'all good with that agenda? Yeah. I'm absolutely. That's a fantastic agenda, Glenn. And you lead the way, man. I, I've been I've been following you for a very long time. We're both economists. Yeah, I, I remember reading you in grad school, Glenn. Uh, I I, uh... <laughs> I got a few years on you. <laughs> uh, so, and and you're writing about health economic stuff as well as uh, inveighing against the uh, kind of lunacy of the uh, you know mass delusion that descended on the country during COVID. I mean, COVID was a distraction. I was supposed to, I have a, a health economics textbook that I was supposed to update in 2020. And my publisher is quite mad at me because <laughs> the last three years have been too busy. Um, but yeah, I, I'm still a health economist and I, and I enjoy uh, thinking about health economics. And those topics are incredibly important. I just, I got distracted with COVID the last three years. Okay. This is how you guys, you and Rob at your Substack announce uh, what you're doing to the world. I just want to, I just want to, with your forbearance, share a little bit of this because I found it so um, evocative. You guys say, science is a process by which we learn about the workings of material reality. Though modern innovations built on the fruits of science would look like magic to people living only decades ago, they result from the time-tested scientific method. Contrary, perhaps, to media portrayals of science, the scientific method depends not on the existence of a mythical consensus, but rather on structured scientific debates. 
if there is a consensus, science challenges it with new hypotheses, experiments, logic, and critical thinking. Ironically, science advances because it believes it has never arrived. Consensus is the hallmark of dead science. And I wanted to say, oh, my God. I mean, uh, that is a profound insight. Not that all the scientists agree, but precisely that they don't. Otherwise, you're not moving forward. <laughs> I mean, but I, I'm sure this is this was true for you. But like one of the, my favorite things about grad school was like I was I was arguing with my friends all the time about like fundamental things, and we were like, you know, we we're friends, like, so we're like we're like learning from each other. I was wrong most of the time, and it was really great. I, it was like you know, I just and, and that. Uh, I've always thought that that would be what my career would be like. I'd be in engagement with really bright people who cared about the things that I cared about, and we'd learn from each other. Uh, it's been it's been kind of a shock to see that 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 idea of like this ideal of what I thought about what science is about overturned during the pandemic. I mean, you know, like I I, I was in med school, right? And I'm learning I'm learning. Uh, uh, anatomy right you sit there and you memorize a bunch of terms about like names of muscles and 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 I, you know and and you know there are there are anatomists who are like creative and stuff but like that felt to me at the time like a dead science just felt like there's nothing alive in it I mean, i'm obviously I'm, I'm, I'm you know cutting up a dead body literally it's dead but it's it's also dead as a science whereas like the the uh, the other science we're doing like people just we, there's like a lot of really smart people disagree isn't that, I mean, that's just, and it's just a lot more, a lot, of, lot more fun to like engage in that. Okay, so I have two thoughts stimulated by you, you and Rob's uh, throwing down the gauntlet. Uh, one of them is, so politics requires action and the legitimacy of the authority behind the action. And the reason that consensus might be manufactured where it doesn't necessarily exist is in order to secure that legitimacy so that the action will be accepted by by people. And that that that's an unavoidable reality of political life. Um, the other thing that I thought, though, was that there is such a thing as denial of science. There's there's such a thing as mysticism and and illusion and all of that. And uh you know, for example, creationism. You know, where where you you're, you're going to say no, the biblical account, you know, something like that. I mean, and and you want to protect yourself from that. That's really regressive. Uh and that too might re might lead to a kind of embrace of consensus as an as a counterpoint to the yahoos who are you know trying to pull everything out what 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 would you say about that so the first point on power is you're absolutely right uh you have to you have to take some action uh and and there has to be some idea behind the action and uh, ideally you would want people to, to to adopt ideas that are broadly speaking consistent with the evidence uh, you know, m many, many, many uh, reasonable people agree with it. I think that that's that's you're absolutely right. It's inevitable. the The issue is that how do you how do you structure it so that you are you're always challenging that idea, right? So, like, uh, I, I'm I'm sure you've read a uh, 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 Team of Rivals, this book by I think Dor Doris Kearns Goodwin about uh, about Lincoln, right? I've heard of it. <laughs> I've not actually read the book, but I, I kind of know the argument that he put together a cabinet of uh, dissensus in order to generate uh, a kind of dynamic uh, environment, something like that. Yeah, and, and I think especially when you're taking action in the midst of great uncertainty, you have to you have to allow that to happen in front of you if you're a leader. And if you don't allow that to happen, you're 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 irresponsible. Like the the idea of checks and balances in political situ I mean, political circumstances is 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 kind of an extension of that, right? You have to have other voices allowed to be allowed to be in. Uh, what happened during the pandemic was that a very small group of people, uh, and you know, it's it's 10, 20, 30, 50 people, I don't know, not that many, um, essentially decided they knew what so so much with such certainty about exactly the right thing to do that they could destroy the reputations of anyone that disagreed with them. I mean, so like, you know, I wrote this great Barrington Declaration with Sinatra Gupta of Oxford University and Martin Kulldorff of Harvard. I mean, and Martin is one of the very best biostatisticians. He wrote, he, he, um, 
created the, he, the, 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 the statistical framework that the FDA and the CDC used to track vaccine safety. So Netra Gupta is an incredible theoretical epidemiologist who's also work on, is, is working actively on a universal, COVID, a universal uh, uh, flu vaccines. And she's had tremendous success in her career with some sort of fundamental advances in, in, in epidemiology. Um, and Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, calls me, Sinatra Gupta, and Martin Kulder fringe. <laughs> I mean, I got, I got a, if I can find I the card. I saw that. I was amazed by that, man. <laughs> I got a card somewhere that says fringe epidemiology on it because now it's like, it needs to go on my, my tombstone. Um, but like, what, excuse what? me for preempting you on the punchline, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> well, and it was, it was crazy. It was, it, I saw those words. You know, and Francis Collins, okay, I'm a Christian, right? So like, I, like I've always admired him. And so like to see his, those words in his mouth were like just a shock. Um, but I'll tell you, like, uh, what's the purpose of that? The purpose is to claim a false mantle of consensus, right? Because why would we do that? Why would he write that four days after he write the Great Branch Declaration? It's because all of a sudden, l- legitimate people are threatening his authority. It's not science, it's power. And you're, you're absolutely right. Power has to, I mean, there, someone has to make a decision, right? Someone has to make, be responsible for that decision. It has to be based on something. But when you have a question of facts, a question of, you know, really a question of science, is, is lockdown uh, a way to suppress the disease? Is it possible to get the disease down to zero? Will Is it better to protect vulnerable people primarily or to have a, a, a society-wide lockdown? Those are scientific questions. And there's a lot of a lot of debate among scientists about that. I Just agree. Was. I agree, but I'm going to come back to my Machiavellian point. Think about what the lockdowns were. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be talking down to you because I know no. you know exactly what they were. But I'm talking to the audience. Think about what was asked of people. Think about the costs that were imposed. Think about the disruptions. Think about the pain. Think about the loss. So the government is getting ready to impose this on people. Um, they can't uh, brook any dissensus, any contestation. If you let that camel's nose under the tent, the whole thing is is going to fall apart. You're going to have people in the streets. And uh, therefore, the imperative of the moment is to manufacture or create or invent something that, you know, it, and it's wrong, but it, I, I don't... I mean, I, I think the, the forces were very powerful in the in the direction that, you know, well, that you them. are com- com- criticizing it, you know, and I'm, I'm on your side. I'm on your side. No, I know, I know but, Glenn. I mean, I, I felt the full force of it. Right. I mean, for for two years, every time I wrote an op ed or spoke in public, I would get death threats. I would get, you know, people would get it was just it was a really terrible. I mean, even by my own university, which I once upon a time loved, uh, attacked me uh, in, in nasty, really terrible ways. Um, it was really hard, uh, so, but because I, I felt p- the power on the other side. It wasn't reason; it was power, and uh, uh, it was it was shocking to me because I, you know, like I, I, my my life has been spent in reason, in trying to in trying to reason with others. Sometimes I'm wrong, sometimes I'm right. That's that's normal, right? Um, uh, but this was just an exercise of raw power, and, and it's exactly for the reason you said, Glenn. You were one hundred percent correct. It was in order because if you don't have that that consensus, how can you ask people to shut themselves up, to not educate their children, to uh, and in the poor parts of the world to starve? That's what we ask people to do. Um, and and uh, and so, like, how could you do that unless it's true what they believe, which is that this is the only way to get to the other side? And so when the, when prominent people say no no that's not true there are other other ways why don't we just in fact for a century we followed a different path for every time we had a respiratory virus pandemic and it worked better uh, we followed that we followed this weird path in in the spring and it didn't work I mean for that for the for the powers like Francis Collins um, he had to he had to do this or else he's not going to get his way and his and his entire authority then collapses because the stakes are so high. Because of what you said, the stakes are so high, and so he has he has to act in this like destructive way, or else, I mean, you know, what he loses authority. But I think if I were in that position, and I've thought about this a lot, I would have I would have rather have lost my authority than than do what he did. 
because it's so deeply irresponsible. Like, what if I'm wrong, right? If I, so I put myself in his shoes, what if I'm wrong? I, I, I've, these guys are saying that I, I'm going to cause catastrophic damage to the world. And you, you and I are social scientists. We know how deeply unequal societies are, how hard it is to, to comply with these kinds of orders for some people, especially at the bottom, right? Go, 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 uh, uh, you know, sort of stay home, stay safe means something very, very different to you and me than it does to someone who's, you know, if they don't go out they're they, you know, like they're, they're, so there was an estimate that like uh, uh, the, the number of people around the world who's because of the economic dislocation caused by lockdown, the number of people who went, who are now at $2 a day or less of income grows by a hundred million people, according to the World Bank, $2 a day. There were there were people like making decisions about whether to put their kids into child labor or sell their kids into into sexual slavery because of this poverty because either that or starve. That's what we did. That's the decision they were making. I was feeling that really deeply. And if I was in Francis Collins' shoes and I'm getting corrected by people who are telling me that, I would have I would have I would have backed down. I, I honestly would have backed down, even if it meant my career. Well, that, that's very powerful. I'm sitting here thinking about various kinds of social experiments like collectivization of agriculture or, you know, mass relocations of huge populations and things that have led to horrible famine or to death in the hundreds of thousands that have been imposed by governments, people acting under some ideological sway, you know, uh, thinking that, you know, eggs must be broken to make omelets kind of thing. And and this is up there with that, actually. I mean, that's that was the thought that I was entertaining. I mean, the ter terrifying thought, you know, and the responsibilities of the functionaries like uh, Collins that you're indicting here, uh, who are handmaiden to it, and and all of that. It's it's very very heavy stuff. And I'm just wondering if it wasn't a trial run for the great climate. Uh, adjustment that's coming that where, you know, you shut down industrial civilization in order to, quote, save the planet, close quote. Uh, I speak, I know, in a little bit hyperbolic terms, but I mean, I, I, I don't want to get you out of your comfort zone, but I'm, <laughs> I, I just uh, read not long ago, I read Steve Coonan's book, uh, Unsettled. You know, you say illusion of consensus, and he's pretty much saying something like that about the, about the climate science popularization that leads to the movement that has such powerful political consequence. You know, I mean, those, uh, those, I, Glenn, I think you were right about the stakes, right? So like the, the, the most, uh, the historical parallel I thought about a lot during the pandemic has been, um, has been, uh, this, this, this man named Trofim Lysenko, who was a Soviet scientist. Uh, he was a Lamarckian evolutionary, so, so this guy who didn't believe in in in, in Mendelian genetics, and uh, he convinced Stalin that uh, he had the trick to like making Soviet agriculture really really productive. Stalin put him in like in a, in a position of high authority in science, and he systematically purged every single Mendelian geneticist in in the the the, the sort of the, the hierarchy of science, Soviet science, and. Soviet and, and and Russians starved as a consequence. Huge collapse in agricultural productivity as a consequence of terrible science with this illusion of consensus backed by power. Um, I mean, I, I don't see any way out. Like these are complicated topics. I mean, maybe this, maybe the climate scientists are right. Maybe they're wrong. I don't know. But like, you can't really just straight have up. You can't just give them power on the basis of a of a idea that they're right and they can't be challenged. Uh, that's just dangerous. I mean, if they're if they're so right, they're going to win because they're they they they're saying true things, uh, and and it's not it's not really that big of I mean that big a threat to have to deal with you know uh, uh, someone who says you know what you know whatever I, I mean again I don't know anything about climate science I shouldn't I shouldn't enter that that that, that yeah. topic at all but like and here and on on the lockdowns epidemiology, if Francis Collins is right, he doesn't need to destroy me to get his way. He can just explain why he's right. And he's, be, he's going to be persuasive. He'll have a ton of information. He's going to have a ton of data and evidence behind what he's saying. Um, he's wrong, then he's then I'm wrong. I mean, and you know, the stakes are high for me too, but not, not that high. He's the guy that's doling out 50, you know, $50 billion or $45 billion of money, to every single biomedical scientist of note. 
Um, okay, okay. We've been talking about power um, and uh, the corrupting effect on science, but but what about denialism? What about this other point that I was making, which is there really do exist conspiracy theorists and and denialists, and 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 you know it's a it's a real threat, uh, and uh, the. Uh, debate that you want to have between scientists will just give fodder to the denialists. They'll, they'll seize on the, uh, you know, selective report from that debate in order to, to ju justify their destructive. And, and doesn't this have a political coloration? I mean, remember the Republican war on science? I mean, this is, you know, the left, right thing in American politics kind of involves this, doesn't it? Yeah. The deplorables are are the Bible thumpers. They're they're the they're the they're in the southern states. They're Christians. They're, you know, and and they're and and they're anti science because well, you know, the enlightened elites on the coast who are who are you know <laughs> atheists and, and I don't know. I'm 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 rambling a little bit here, but it, it seems to me that there are interactions between political currents and this this epistemic debate that that you're talking about within science and i think the fact that trump is running for reelection at the same time that this thing was happening where you know basically with the economy booming he's kind of coasting to you know victory but then of course if you shut the economy down and you know you hide in your basement you know <laughs> that thing <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it was, it's, I mean, okay, so I'll tell you, like, I, I don't think this will ever happen again, but I, I got to visit with Trump in August of 2020 in the Oval Office. And he oh, actually, wow. he actually said this, he's like, I, you know, the economy is booming. And then I had to shut the world down because, and he said, I, I, the, the scientists are telling me if, if I don't shut the world down, 2 million lives, pe people, 2 million people will die within a couple of months in March, 2020. That's, and he's, and I, I had to like tell him sadly, because those models were wrong. Those models were based on parameters that were not known at the time, and, and, and in retrospect, turned out to be very, very, very wrong. Um, you know, like if you applied them to Sweden, you would have thought there would be you know ten, uh, tens of thousands of deaths in Sweden that didn't happen in the, in a couple of months after after March twenty twenty. Um, so uh, it was. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. There, and of course, the, the the existence of Trump absolutely deranges the minds of basically everybody. You know, both both the people who support him and the people who don't. They're like it's like a Napoleon-like figure. You just you can't think about him rationally. Um, you, <laughs> so so like I, I mean I, th I completely agree with that. But let me let me let me address your your main point, which is about um, about denialism and about about a rejection of science altogether. I, I think I'd say two things. Like one is the the set of people who have those kinds of ideas. Um, I mean, I don't. A lot of a lot of how like people in 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 my circles think about them. I'm sure it's true. It's it's almost like it's a form of bigotry. It's like they're beneath us to even engage with and think about. And I think that I don't see how that's constructive. Like I, I have, I'd rather engage with somebody even if they're even if they're flat earther or whatever. They're gonna. I mean, I I don't think it's gonna produce a particularly constructive conversation. But uh, I'm not going. But by the fact that I'm engaging with them doesn't mean that I'm I'm in, legitimizing them, right? I, except in one very narrow, the narrow but important sense. Like right? I'm not rejecting as them as subhuman because I'm I'm willing to engage with them, right? Uh, whereas if I say they're so beneath me that I don't want to even engage, well, all of a sudden I've created an enemy out of out of them. I mean, it's just then it's just a matter of power again, rather than reason. Um, a second, I, I don't. I don't see how they're all that dangerous. I don't I actually don't understand that. I fundamentally don't don't get it. I mean, they're saying things that are demonstrably false. You know, I like. I mean, I got the you know some of the trolls on Twitter are people who think that viruses don't exist, and you know, it's just it's just tired. So I don't really, I don't really. I've engaged a couple of times with them. It's not that I don't want. To, I think of them as less than human. I just think they're wrong about this pretty fundamental thing. And I, I can't really have a all that a constructive conversation when the basic premise for how they think about the, the thing I'm talking about is is wrong, right? So I, I, I can't really have that constructive conversation, but, but they're like, they're, they're, they, they're, they're probably good people. They, they love their, their kids, they, they love their neighbors. I mean, they, they, they could be fantastic people, 
aside from and so I can't have a really constructive conversation with them about 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 you know epidemiology because they the, the basis for all of epidemiology is is you know the, the the you know the pathogen theory of disease is like a pretty pretty fundamental thing right but on the other hand I can have a constructive conversation about many many other things so as as scientists I think we have to figure out some middle path we're not really we think of ourselves as above it's tempting to think of ourselves as above, but we're not really above. We're still in, and and uh, you know sometimes we have better knowledge than others. Sometimes we don't. We and we have to figure out some some way to be humble when we it's appropriate to be humble. Uh, stick to the facts when there when when there are some, and and then and then, um, but then then don't turn this into don't, don't turn those conversations into something so fundamental. But then of course it's connected to power, right? And so it's hard, but so like the 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 combination of the two things, the po the politics and power versus the the the, the necessity of reason with basically everybody, um, it's it's I don't I don't see any other way but muddling through. I don't see a like a, a single solution. Like there's some people sometimes you have to engage with, and sometimes you you ignore some debates, not pointedly because as a permanent thing. It's just like this is not the constructive conversation I want to have now, kind of thing. You know, I'm sitting here thinking. I have a friend whose uh, wife had breast cancer, and uh, there was a question of how to treat. So the oncologists have a therapy of uh, chemo and radiation, and the traditionalists have some herbal thing. And so the question arose as to the what, what, what you know how do you disabuse somebody who believes in the herbal thing when the woman's life is at stake uh and it's it's a question of faith because you you're not actually able to prove it i mean you all you can do is say that doctor so and so said the studies show such and such i mean th that's a very abstract kind of argument Relative to, I know Susie, Susie went to the herbalist and she didn't let them poison her body and she got better. Or even Susie died just like the other one did, but at least she didn't have to poison her body for the, le the last five years in order, you know, or, or whatever. I, I mean, I wonder what you think about this. Where does the power come from to persuade somebody to em embrace the science? Yeah, uh, in in a situation like that, I mean, I think I, I should tell you that it's not just a it's not just a theoretical thing for me. Like I, when I, one of the reasons I chose to go to medical school uh, was that my when my father, when I was thirteen, had a heart attack, and um, it was like 19, early eighties. Uh, he um, and he chose not to to get an angiogram, not to do the traditional because he was very afraid of open heart surgery, which probably would have saved his life. Um, and, but and he went to this this other doctor who told him to do this. Uh, there's this treatment at the time called EDTA, the chelate to calcium or something. He and it was just it was. I mean, I've, I've now looked the literature up, and it was there's no good evidence really behind it. But for him, he was so scared of the possibility that he would die on the table that he wouldn't go down the traditional path. Um, and and uh, you know, it's just a few years later, he died of another heart attack. Um, so you know, I I mean, I feel this. Per, like from a, at a personal level, uh, I, I would love to persuade people about what the science is on on these on these topics. Like the the, per, the person considering herbalist therapy for a treatable cancer with chemo and radiation, I would I would love to have a chance to reason. My my wife is an oncologist; that's what she does for a living. Um, so so I, I don't. It's not that I want the herbalist to just get their way. The question is, how do I how do I how do I persuade a, a human being who's facing a very difficult life or death choice in that situation? Do I do it with, with raw power or do I do it with reason? And I think, I think it's, you know, there's costs and benefits to this. Like, so if you, if you do it with power, you're likely to get your way more often than, than if you just do it with reason. I think that is absolutely true. You have to on, honestly acknowledge that. And and sometimes that'll be good because you'll persuade more people. Persuade persuades the wrong word when you're using raw power, but that, but you know what I mean. Um, and, and you you you'll get them to do exactly what you think is the right thing to do. That's true. But the the thing is, it's very brittle. 
what if what if the chemo was wrong? I mean, not it's not like not likely not wrong compared to herbalist, but maybe there's some other chemo or some some other thing. And the person that's like exercising the raw power as attached yeah. and has that raw power is attached themselves to the wrong thing. It's very brittle. So, so it could cause catastrophic damage. Whereas the the persuasive path, you're gonna have some some harm, absolutely. And I take that point. Um, but it's gotta be, it's gonna be, it's gonna be better. From a broader social perspective, overall, because you'll, you're, you're, I, I don't, I don't believe most people are un, are unreasonable in that way, and they're gonna. So I, I think if I have the chance to, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm too, too like, uh, I have too much hubris. I, I always think I can persuade people, um, uh, but I think, I think if we, but, but I, it's gonna be persuasion. It's not gonna be, it's gonna be, it's not gonna be power. If I, if I just get you to think what I, what I want you to think with raw power. I've accomplished nothing. I've just, I've, I've, I've you know, I, I, I don't, I don't view that as an accomplishment. Whereas if I've persuaded you to agree with me, or at least partly agree with me, or, or better yet, engage with me, and then you can help me change my mind about things, because with, with reason, that's, that's, I think is for the best. I really don't see a way around this. Like it's, it's the difference between a, a liberal society and an authoritarian society. Like, I think liberal societies have their problems, but they're way be better set of problems to have than the authoritarian societies. You know, I was also thinking, I, mean, I wonder if there isn't some kind of paradox in statistics involved here in the sense that the science is going to be, okay, we did these trials and we saw this average difference and it was significant at the sort of 0.01 level and so on, versus the fact that life is actually lived idiosyncratically. It's lived in one yeah. trial, not in a thousand trials. Theoretically, the averages are such and such. So that there's some, something about the power of example that uh, when it's a counterexample, I mean, I, I think about this in the climate debate. I know we're not going to talk about the climate debate, but, you know, whether the difference between weather and climate and the fact that we had a storm or we had a series of storms and then people, you know. So I, I, I wonder if there isn't something like that uh, going on in, as well. Science requires a kind of, I don't know, suspension of the visceral reaction to coincidence or anecdote and and the, the belief in the appropriateness of applying the statistical apparatus something like that uh, completely that's that's right i mean and, and medicine of course is is applied science but it's also art right so like and it's exactly that tension you're just identified some trial gives me a mean treatment effect but there's a lot of heterogeneity in those outcomes uh, economists, econometricians worry about heterogeneity of treatment effects all the time. That's like a major theme in econometrics. Uh, what, what does that mean? That means that the, the treatment that might affect you one way will affect me a different way. And medicine has lived in that ambiguity. Like I, I see you and I have to learn your story so I can uh, give the, like a crafty advice that I give you to fit you with the knowledge that there's these mean treatment effects and there's this uncertainty around it heterogeneity around it uh, and i may end up giving you a very different advice than i give you know somebody else because of your life circumstance that's perfectly normal and good medicine that's not ascientific it's in fact is it's it's actually really scientific because i'm trying to take the totality of the evidence in into account when i'm making a, a recommendation or decision let's talk about nutrition let's talk about health let's talk about ag1 AG1 has a mission. It is to empower people to take ownership of our health with a simple daily foundational nutrition habit. What makes you stick to a habit? You stick to a habit because it's good, because you know you're making yourself better when you do it every day. And I have the habit of taking AG1, a nutritional supplement, with my protein shake or just straight by itself every single day. I gave AG1 a try because, well, I was getting up in years, I was feeling tired and sluggish, I was putting on weight, and I wanted to take care of myself. I wanted to take care of my own health. I wanted to take responsibility. I was tired of taking so many supplements, so I wanted to try a single solution that would support my entire body and cover my basic nutritional needs on a daily basis. I wanted to get better health to boost my energy, to strengthen my immune system. And I hated taking pills and vitamins. I wanted a supplement that tastes good as well. 
And so I drink a G1 in the mornings before going out to work, just after making my coffee to start my day. It makes me feel great. I know I'm doing the right thing. It's hard for me to keep up with a supplement routine that comes with a bunch of different kind of products. But since I've been drinking AG1, I noticed that my overall health has been better and it's a habit that I can stick to. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Glenn. That's drinkag1.com slash Glenn. Check it out. I love that. I love that as a definition of what the art of medicine is as distinct from the science of it, where the science tells you what the mean treatment effect is in the art. Knowing that there's heterogeneity is identifying for a given individual where in the distribution of outcome they are likely to fit given the non-measured things that are idiosyncratic to them, which only in a medical examination can reveal uh, to the statistician doesn't have all that information when he, when he does the model. A very Hayekian thing, right? I mean, like, didn't didn't Hayek say, have this thing with the, this illusion of knowledge idea that, or that this, um, uh, that 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 knowledge is very very disparate. Not illusion. The, uh, what's the word? Uh, dispersion of knowledge. Uh, not, like local knowledge is very very dispersed. And so I, you know, I I, I have this, uh, you know, I, I happen to I have this crazy uh, thing where I just obsessed with. Uh, you can look in the back. There's there's a whole set of like uh, uh, books I buy about about like programming languages that I'm not likely to ever use, but I just, <laughs> I just like reading about them. Uh, you would never know that. So you would never, um, but, but if you're my friend, you'll send me gifts like that. Right. So it's like, uh, uh, why would a, why would a fringe epidemiologist know about crazy programming languages? But I just happen to know. So you, you know, it's the kind of thing where you, the local knowledge that's not known to the center is really, really important. It's how price systems work, right? Uh, the the Hayekian idea: you send price signal, price is a mean signal about relative scarcity, but then people make use of that very differently, based on their own local preferences. Well, this is a music uh, to my ears. You're preaching to the choir over here. These ideas, I mean, this is why I became an economist. I mean, <laughs> I, I remember reading this. Uh, uh, Charlene Koopman said this book, Three Essays on the State of Economic Science, where he explained, you know, the first and second fundamental theorems of welfare economics. And he basically explained about efficiency, decentralization, and and prices. And that, that uh, I mean, it's amazing because you could have a large number of individuals and each of them are making a number of complex decisions. But if, you know, if all the goods are traded and they're, they're reacting to common prices, they coordinate their... Uh, various independent decisions in a manner that's consistent with social efficiency. This is just like, you know, a very profound idea. And it, it has a program attached to it. It doesn't, it's not religion. People say it's religion. But I mean, what it does is it leads you to look for places where the necessary assumptions break down. And then what are the second best kind of uh, institutions that come into existence to deal with that? Uh, it's, you know, it's what microeconomics is all about. You know, I, I love it. But I have a question. Before I let you go, which is how do we keep this from happening again? I mean, for example, my colleague, the economist Emily Oster, had a piece, I think it was in the Atlantic or somewhere, saying, let's all kiss and make up and forgive. Don't be mad at Dr. Fauci. People had a hard <laughs> job, they made mistakes. Let's give an amnesty, a truth and reconciliation commission. Let's let's move on. And then a lot of people said, Oh no, oh no, we we, you know, people should be held accountable. What do you think about that uh, in the context of how we keep this from happening again? Well, Emily got absolutely mauled over that piece. It was, <laughs> and I have to say, like, I have to, I, I'm sympathetic to her in some in one sense. Like, I, I think I told you I was a Christian. I mean, I, like, I'm supposed to forgive, right? That's I'm this this crazy call to forgive even my enemies. Uh, I've had a lot of practice with that, Glenn. Um, I, it's just it's it's a hard <laughs> practice. Um, but I, I I think the thing is is like um, amnesty is not the right word. We have to do an honest, uh, honest assessment, right? So I wrote this document with seven of my uh, close friends uh, called the Norfolk Group uh, do document, and you, you can look at, look it up online, NorfolkGroup.org. It's like eighty pages of questions with you know, avid, uh, like you know, citations to papers, 
for in 10 different areas for the, the COVID response. We should have answers to those questions. They're not like crazy questions like, why did we close schools? What were the harms taken into account? What are we doing to fix those harms? Um, things like that. Um, and uh, if, if we have answers to those questions, that will that will induce a, 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 a program of reform, I think, that is absolutely necessary. I mean, there's some things like even within the context of the we've been talking about, like the power structures, right? So I, I don't, I mean, I didn't think about this before the pandemic, but like I, it became so clear since the pen during the pandemic, uh, someone who's in charge of funding a vast amount of of work in scientific in science, someone like Tony Fauci or Francis Collins, they wield a tremendous power, not just over who gets the the money, but over the social status of scientists, right? So I don't get tenure at Stanford Medical School unless I have an NIH grant, right? That's a marker of success. A lot of scientists looking at Tony Fauci or Francis Collins saying that Jay's a fringe epidemiologist is going to say, I'm not going to, I'm not, <laughs> I'll put my head above the parapet. I like my career, right? Uh, so that, that means there's a fundamental conflict of interest. You can't have the funders of science then uh, essentially taking very strong positions in health policy because that creates a, 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 a self-censorship kind of incentive inside of, inside of, among scientists. So even if they disagree with Tony, they won't let us speak up. Um, I mean, I, I prepared for this. I read, reread your paper on on censorship. Your your, your game theory that was a fantastic paper, by the way, Glenn. I, I, uh, I could just see yourself thinking of the idea when and, <laughs> and writing it. Um, I remember reading in grad school uh, and thinking, why why would anyone ever self censor? <laughs> now I'm seeing why. I mean, you know, you just. Um, but yeah, it's a really insightful paper. Um, I mean, the, uh, the the idea is like it's and so that means that. The program of reform is don't, don't, uh, don't let people. There's a that make it a conflict of interest for a funder of science to to launch themselves into health policy or into 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 into, into policy. Just they should just be funding excellent science and not saying anything at all about epidemiological policy. That would have been much more healthy. Uh, but so that's what we need. We need a, a set like a, an honest commission to actually answer these qu basic questions. And then a reform agenda that comes out of the answers, just like with, after the Challenger disaster, the space shuttle blows up, uh, Richard Feynman dips the O-ring in the ice in front of Kong, and, and then all of a sudden we have this reform agenda for NASA, right? It doesn't happen. And I think that's what we really need. You see any prospects of that happening? Um, I mean, because time is running running out, right? I mean, we we want to be as to do it as quickly as close to the events as possible. I mean, I, I don't. Some some countries already had some of this. So so like Norway has, has two commissions where they've like castigated themselves over closing the schools. Um, the UK has a commission that's going to go for three years. So I don't know that the time's necessarily running out. Maybe cooler heads need to happen before you uh, because yeah, the, uh, the the decisions that were made were you know the politicians owned them right the ones that made them, and so they maybe they need to be out of power before you can really make a, a, an honest assessment. In the United States, it's been. It's it's like I've been I testified in the house a couple of times the last couple last few months, um, and it's so polarized. It it's it just seems I just despair of, of having an honest assessment. Like there's well, the Democrats are saying, oh, it's all misinformation. Everything was problem was just misinformation. If only there wasn't misinformation, we would have all been utopia, which is ridiculous. Um, and uh, the Republicans are I I think most of them, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are trying to get some honest question. But a lot of them were. I mean, you know, there there were like a lot of problems in in communication in Republican circles too, right? There really was some misinformation that floated around, so they they don't want to admit admit that. Um, and that, but I do think that we'll have. I I don't really like to think that you need political things to happen to have have true truth truth come out, but I I think in this case you kind of do. I, I think the twenty twenty four election will be really interesting because you have people in both political parties that are anti lockdown, prominent people. You know, Ron DeSantis, most prominently in the Republican Party, uh, RFK Jr. in the Democratic Party. We're going to have this conversation, and it's going to be in a political setting. I think it can be healthy to have it. Okay, I'm I'm thinking about recrimination and retribution. Suppose I have a governor who sends uh, uh, people to nursing homes and the death toll is very high as a consequence of the transmission. 
and uh, he acted without full information about what the consequences would be for whatever the reasons were. And then we can do an accounting. He has blood on his hands or she. That's one kind of thing. Suppose I have a teacher's union that is trying to protect its members from the possibility of exposure to disease, as well as the fact that it might be kind of a job action or or a way of feather bedding or something like that to not have to, you know, uh, come in. Uh, that's a that's a different kind of thing. I mean, I wonder if we if we actually have the stomach for that that kind of an ex post facto accounting. Well, I mean, that's the thing is like we just what would you the stakes you laid out earlier in our conversation are absolutely true. They were tremendous stakes. Like basically every aspect of of social functioning was impacted by these decisions, and people leaders made these decisions. I don't think, I mean, unless they did something criminal, I don't think the right thing is to like have Nuremberg 2.0. I don't think that that is actually a constructive way. These are people that have to continue. They're not like people that we can just throw away. We Sending them to Siberia, that, that, that compounds the mistake. I think we have to have some honest assessment of what happened. And then reform. I think a lot of these decisions were made by people that were in good faith making them. They, I think I think they were catastrophically wrong. They were catastrophically bad. That actually makes it worse, right? So you have a bunch of people acting out of good faith, trying to make the right decision, but because of the, the, the structures, information, the fear, they made very, very bad decisions. You don't throw them away. You just say, you say that, that these decisions were bad, then reform structure so that when the next time it happens, the incentives that the people that are in power then Will 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 do will make the right thing. I think Milton Friedman had this thing. It's like it doesn't matter so much that if you uh, who who if you elect good people, it's that that you have uh, political structures in place so that even if you elect bad people, they do the right thing. That's the way I think about this. Uh, maybe it's too much of an economist, and I, I, maybe uh, you can tell me. You can correct me. You're you're even, you're even more of an economist than I am, Glenn. I mean, I learned from you. Um, but how do how do you how do you uh, like? I I don't see throwing people in jail or Nuremberg or like, I mean, those, those things like it just, it gets people's hackles up. And those are the people that have the power now. Like I I'm, 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 I'm not powerful. Like I don't, I don't, I want to, I want, and I, I don't think the next set of people in power, the stake should be like that. The stake should be, you know, you, if you'd made the wrong decision, you would lose, you lose some reputation. There's that's inevitable. Right. But, you, but, 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 uh, but, you know, like it's uh, that judgment is tempered by a reality of like you were facing a really difficult time with incomplete information and you had this group of people that were telling you you had to do this thing. I mean, I had a lot of sympathy for Trump in that in that meeting in one sense. Like he had to make a really tough decision. I wish he had been like, you know, DeSantis who was reading the, you know, I had this conversation with DeSantis September 2020 where it was a, it was a rem- it was amazing. He was like, he was quoting footnotes of papers and stuff to me. Hmm. I was like, what That's is impressive. this? I just, I mean, I was like, I mean, I'd never thought of a political leader being able to do that. So I, I mean, but not every, poli- we can't ask every political leader to do that. That's just on it. Like, it's just, we have to be honest. The question is, how do we create structures so that they see a range of opinions for things like this when something like this comes up? I, I like it. It's a kind of theory of constitutional design. I can see Madison or uh, Hamilton or somebody sitting around saying, we have to, create the government that is not susceptible to manipulation by the venal characters who are going to have to actually occupy it (laughs) by separation of powers and federalism and things like that. Uh, And I also think, I mean, it's an interesting problem in mechanism design. I think that, you know, you can just, you can disincentivize something by having the rewards penalized and so on, or you can make it so that the, ultimate outcome is not so sensitive to whether or not the person behaves in accordance with yeah, uh, something like that. Now, I wanted to ask you about the lab leak stuff and the origins. Is that is that uh, also a live and let live and never mind? And, you know, we, we don't need to actually do anything to anybody about about that stuff. Oh, God. <laughs> God can you imagine this? OK, so I, I, I think it's more likely this was a lab leak. But let me let me set the stage for this. Okay, because it's not like, you know, Dr. Evil plot kind of thing. Uh, what it is, is, is it's, it's again, the, 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 the 
consequence, the bad, bad consequences of good intentions, I think. I think that's the right story here. Um, so like you had, uh, let's just go, let's go back, 2001, the anthrax scare happens. Um, the Bush administration builds this, this infrastructure to, to deal with bioterror bio events. 2006, there's the H5N1 avian flu scare, and people have this idea, well, why don't we use this infrastructure that we deal with for biodefense and have it to civilian uses? And the thought comes up in people's heads, well, we have these genetic techniques to, to ask whether, how many mutations it takes for a, a virus that mainly only affects birds to infect humans. Let's apply this idea. Because if we do that, we can say, okay, which viruses are likely to make the leap and prepare in advance. We can, we can, we can get vaccines for the viruses even before they've made the leap. 2012, there's a paper published in Science with this exact advance. Someone essentially puts out a, a formula to weaponize H5N1, publishes it, it openly in Science. Right, it only takes a few mutations, and now it can infect. And this is a disease that, when it does infect humans, thirty percent death rate. Right, so you have a few chicken farmers die at really high rates from it, but it doesn't make the jump from chickens to humans very easily, and it doesn't make the jump from humans to humans at all. And here's a formula to like make it more likely to, to infect humans. Um, and okay, so 2012, there's this massive out. Uh, pushback within the scientific community. This, this Cambridge working group pops up and says, this is really freaking dangerous. Don't do this. Um, this and, is gain of function research that you're describing? Yeah. I mean, uh, you, there's like technical aspects of like, you, hear, you saw Tony Fauci like try to push back and say it's not gain of function, whatever. But this is, that's in any colloquial sense, any real sense, it's gain of function, right? You're, you're giving these things attributes that it didn't previously have. And these are, and now some of them might be like attributes like it now can glow in the dark. But this attribute is it can infect human cells um, when previously wasn't able to. Um, and uh, there's a pause. Uh, President Obama very wisely approves a pause in the U.S. funding of this work. And Tony Fauci or Francis Collins has to sign off on any, any grants in the NIH that has this kind of work. 2014, the gain-of-function pause. 2017, the Trump administration comes in and essentially Fauci works his way, they, and the NIH work their way around Trump uh, I mean, I've talked to some insiders. They're like, I they don't even, they, you know, people who should know said they didn't even realize it crossed their desk. Um, uh, the, and they reversed the pause and they put in place this committee, this PPP committee to, to potential pathogen something committee to, to evaluate every single uh, proposal for gain of function work. Um, and so Tony Fauci. Why were have they to trying it. to? Why were they trying to get around the the earlier prohibition? What was the imperative in terms of the scientific questions? They think that it's absolutely necessary to know which viruses are likely to make the leap, because in order to protect human populations, they're not okay. doing this because of nefarious reasons. They're doing it because they want. They honestly believe that if they go into bat caves in China, pull the viruses out of those bat caves, and bring it into a lab to to do this kind of work. They can develop vaccines faster. They can protect human populations from this natural zoonosis threat that exists. They're, they're, they're trying to, they think they're doing good. Um, and and okay. so that's, that's why this, that's what makes it so freaking dangerous. It's not, they're not, they're not like Dr. Evil. They think they're doing good, but they do this work. They, it's hard to do this work because if you do this in a BSL-4 lab, a BSL-4 lab, you know, you're wearing a spacesuit. I mean, I, this is the thing, the reason I entered economics. I don't have to wear a spacesuit. I can just, <laughs> I'm pretty clumsy. Um, and it's hard work. And it's like, you just, it's easy to make a slip, right? You just forget to put your mask on one day or you, 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 yeah, I mean, there's just, it's just something, it's so easy to like make a slip, especially for a highly infectious agent. This virus, this COVID virus in 2021, there was a lab in Taiwan studying this virus and there's a lab leak. It's a high security lab, a lab leak of this virus in Taiwan in 2021, knowing what this virus is. Right, so it's really hard to do this work, and so the the counter argument to the to this, okay, maybe there's some theoretical benefit from from developing vaccines early or whatever to potential threats, but the but you might actually raise the probability of the threat happening because the because of this accident in a lab. I think that's what happened. I think that's like very 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 likely what happened. Um, 
how costly was the lack of cooperation or uh, candor from the Chinese uh, government about the uh, what happens in Wuhan and beyond to the project of responding effectively at a global level to the pandemic? I think it was tremendously costly, right? So I think, like, suppose suppose there had been a lab leak. I, I don't know this for a fact, but like, let's say, or I mean, like, now the reporting is this is sometime in November 2020, 2019, there was a lab leak. Uh, we know, we know, the earliest, or some of the earliest pa- patients were were lab workers at the Wuhan lab. Um, but so I actually think it's likely early, a little earlier than that. But like, let's let's just say that 2019 story is true. November 2019 lab leak. There's a th- three workers that are exposed to this virus. Suppose in a counterfactual world, those workers had said, oh my gosh, there's been, I've, I've made this mistake. And then they've been quarantined for, th- for, for two weeks and they get their illness and they get better, but they don't expo- they're not going back to their families. It doesn't get out outside of that. And then the Chinese uh, authority said, told everyone, this is, there's a leak. We should be really careful about it. It's, these are these are like very these are kind of systems where like uh they're like they're like saddle points you know in 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 economics like either you go one or the other it's either zero in this case it's either zero or one either you've suppressed it in its in its infancy or it's going to get to a, you know basically to a hundred right for a disease that's spread by these aerosols and so like we had we I think that 2019 point whenever it was um when the leak happened was a, was a saddle point. Like if they'd gotten to zero right then, it would have been zero. By March of 2020, the, the attempt to lock down was, it was so far outside the bounds of possibility that it was ridiculous. You know, the only thing you could do is try to like protect people that were really vulnerable at that point. That's, that's the, that would have been the right thing. The, the, you have to, but then that would have taken the psychological step of saying, oh my God, there's, we, we, we really don't have the technology to stop the spread. Um, and I think that was the mistake we made, that we somehow pretended that we had this technology when we didn't have it in February, March 2020. It was already past that saddle point, like the other side of the saddle point. Um, so I think it was, I think in, in the sense that you mean it is, it was tremendously harmful that, that there wasn't cooperation by the Chinese authorities to tell the world that this had happened immediately when it happened. It was also tremendously harmful for and irresponsible the American government to fund this work in places where... Um, really, the, the the they knew for a fact that there was lax uh, lax security in terms of like uh, you know working with dangerous viruses. In part, the they fund the work in Wuhan because it's harder to get this work done in the United States because you have to do this more security. But even in the United States, Glenn, I'm not sure you can work with viruses like this safely. I just don't think it's possible to work with viruses like this safely. I think the I think anything we learn from the last three years is that it's so dangerous that we probably just don't want to do this. Kind of like with you know the nuclear test ban treaty, we won't test nuclear weapons above ground like this because it's it's so so dangerous for human populations. It's just not worth it. Um, we kind of need to like break the sorcerer's wand. Like we don't. We just this is a part, like a scientific tool we just won't use because it's too dangerous. We have to work. I think this is a, this seems to be like a international treaty banning this thing. We have to start thinking about the same way we think about uh, uh, chemical weapons, right? It should induce horror in us. Uh, I once uh, read this book by uh, Roger Shattuck, who was a literary guy, actually. What did he call it? Forbidden knowledge or something like that. But it was a reflection on this idea, which goes all the way back in the uh, classical literature tradition, you know, like Pandora's box, you know, like the Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you know, this this idea of things that that we are not to know, uh, ought not to know. And what with the talk about uh, uh, chat GPT and, and AI now, it, it's, it's back, uh, you know, and it, it's it's. Uh, an interesting counterpoint to how we started this conversation in extolling the virtues of science and the scientific method, because it does involve a kind of imposition on science, doesn't it? To say yeah. these things are too dangerous. I mean, I, I, I do think that that's that's exactly right. I mean, I, I like the 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 um, the issue is is what does it cost us to get that knowledge, right? So, like a scientific 
conversation on 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 basically almost everything is not so dangerous i think that that, that you 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 have to restrict it but there are some things that we've discovered in science that are so dangerous and i don't mean like the end point of it because we don't know what the end point of it is but i mean just the 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 the, the playing around with it yeah uh, you know, like I, I, I was reading this account of uh, of Fermi and in his experiments in the University of Chicago squash court and the in the nuclear yeah. pile, right? and they had done this calculation saying, okay, it's it's not going to set off a chain reaction that's going to burn the entire world up. But what if they were wrong, Glenn? <laughs> what if they were wrong? They were like playing with these nuclear reactor essentially in a major population center. And what if their calculations are off by a little bit, and and this there was this unstoppable chain reaction that burns the world up? That, that was a really dangerous experiment. I'm trying to wonder how they might have even begun to estimate the likelihood that the reaction would not be contained. Uh, I I don't know enough of the physics to know how to approach the problem, but presumably the number was bigger than zero. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's something. I mean, like science is dangerous in one sense, right? We're going to learn new things about the world, um, but like when we are pretty sure that something is so dangerous that it can cause the, the the devastation of the lives of tens of millions of people, like this. I mean, like this experiment gone awry. That's what it did. I mean, let's be honest. Like it it was an, it was an experiment, a science experiment gone awry that led to the misery of the last three years. Um, what do you do with that? And actually, like you know, like I, 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 I would love to resurrect William Shakespeare to write Tony Fauci. Like he's now he signed off on this experiment, and now it's gone. It's January 2020, and he thinks he might think to himself, "My God, this experiment I found funded led to this. What do I do?" Well, what they did was they, you know, that it was funny. They destroyed. They tried to destroy the careers of of prominent scientists that that. We're saying that it might have been a lab leak in January 2020. You can look at the FOIA emails. They did the same play. They tried to create this illusion of consensus that it wasn't a lab leak. Well, it feels to me like some kind of censure is required. I say this in the uh, the aftermath of uh, Adam Schiff having been censured by the Republican Congress for his uh, conduct as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee during the time when Democrats had the House and when Trump was being investigated. And uh, I, I, again, don't want to take you out of your comfort zone, but it seems to me that if the reports about his abuse of the insider information that he had in that office, given the role that he played in the public prosecution of the case against Trump are true, censure was appropriate, in my opinion. Likewise here. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's this... (laughs) Okay, so now you, I'm like, you don't know more too much about me than I probably should have revealed. But like, I, I'm kind of a Star Trek guy, and, and like the originals, there was a, there was a, there was an episode in the original series where uh, uh, Enterprise comes into this planet that's completely empty except for this one guy in this one house. They go, they beam down, and they start. They talk to this guy, and he's like playing games with them. But like, finally, they realize uh, the p- planet was once this teeming, huge population of people, and the guy is a god. He can do anything. He can snap his fingers. He tells his story. He comes down to the the planet, and everyone loves him. He's healing people. He's like taking care of everybody. Um, <laughs> and they get mad at him for something, and he gets mad at them. And he snaps their thing, his finger, and he annihilates billions of people. That's and he's sitting there on the planet alone, oh, wow. in in and trying to find some way for penance for what he did. But he's a god. There's no one to judge him. Um, and so he's like, he's begging the, the, uh, Kirk judge me and Kirk takes the upright <laughs> and leaves. He says, I don't, I'm not, I'm just a man. I can't judge you. It's almost like that, Glenn. It's like what he did was so far outside the bounds. That it's almost impossible. And it's not just him. Of course, there was a whole community of, of virologists that, that, that wanted this, these experiments. Um, it's so far outside the bounds. I do agree that there needs to be some censure, but I think the appropriate censure is historical ignominy. Like you just you're going to think back and say this was a, this was a you know like the Frankenstein monster, you know the, the 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 Victor Frankenstein, like creating that monster was a mistake, a great great catastrophic mistake. Uh, I'm going to let that be the last word, Jay. Uh, that's that's very very profound. I think the writers at 
the uh, old and classic uh, Star Trek with Spock and Captain Kirk and Uhura <laughs> and Chekhov. Oh, they were great, weren't they? <laughs> the writers must have been having a hell of a good time because that's a wonderful allegory that you just got through sketching. Uh, it, 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 uh, yeah, judgment and and uh, yeah. Do you think he feels regret? How could he not? Yeah. How could he not? Like, but it's 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 tied up with this like desire to maintain this uh, his reputation as you know the the, the world's best. Epi- uh, what is it? Infectious disease doctor that advised seven presidents and you know uh, managed the AIDS crisis and all this. I mean, he's. It's. I have a textbook from him actually sitting on a shelf somewhere. The Harrison's Internal Medicine, where he's a co-author, where he's a co editor. I mean, I I admired the man before the pandemic. Yeah, I heard you and Lex Friedman uh, discussing this and Collins as well. And I was impressed by the reverence that both of you showed as scientists for for these figures and how disappointed you were, therefore, in the way they conducted themselves. But I guess we'll leave it at that. Uh, Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford, uh, author, co-author of The Great Barrington Resolution and a podcast entrepreneur with Rob Aurora, at uh, the illusion of consensus. Thanks for coming on the Glenn Show, Jay. Glenn, thank you for this invitation. It was just an honor to talk with you. Thank you.